and I suspect all of us that we've come to take your grace, your mercy, your intervention in our lives as typical, as if we're entitled somehow. And when things aren't just wonderful, doesn't take that much pressure. We begin to think, God, you've forsaken me. Where are you? God, help us to stand amazed in your presence, as the old hymn says. That we're constantly just blown away by your mercy and your grace. Capture our hearts even this morning with your truth from your word. Remind us day by day, moment by moment, that apart from your grace, we are in the greatest degree of peril. Forgive us for our presumption, for thinking, I've got enough Jesus, I need more of this world. God, it's your mercy, it's your grace, it's your presence, your power in us that sustains us, that gives us hope, that enables us to continue to stand. Forgive us, well, God, forgive us for thinking we've got enough of you, we need more of something else. Might we be reminded this morning of the power of the cross and the peace that it brings to us both now and for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. So open your Bibles, would you, to the Gospel of Luke. You see in the printed bulletin that uh, I was to begin with First Peter. We're going to conclude with First Peter this morning. I want to begin with you in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. We are, these days, working through these eight, I'm calling them building blocks, these foundational stones on which all of the gospel, the whole story of the scripture, is built. And that story comes to us in, in these, again, eight foundational, big, big section ways, uh, starting with God, then man, sin, and death. And yet those first four, half of the eight, are not entirely explained, but certainly introduced to us in just the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we learn about God. Then that God creates mankind. And right away, right away, we rebel and sin, and that sin produces spiritual death. They don't fall over dead, Adam and Eve, but they are separated from God. Spiritual death. Physically, they're still alive. But emotionally, spiritually, relationally, they're alienated from God. That's a form of death. When we die, our bodies leave this world. But when we spiritually are dead, we're apart from God's world. And all of these first four of these eight foundational truths on the first three chapters of, of Genesis and then 
repeated over and over and over in great detail and emphasis, reinforcing these four basic truths. The New Testament picks up with introducing us to Christ, the promised Messiah. One will come, one will come. And as far back as the Garden of Eden in chapter 3 of Genesis, God is saying to them, Eve will have seed. Women don't produce seed. But God will miraculously put seed in her. Jesus will come from a virgin. Jesus will come. A deliverer will come. A Messiah will come. Christ will come. This is where Pastor Jose was last week. Full of grace. Full of truth. Truth is we're in big trouble. We've sinned against God. We're alienated from God. How do we get reconciled? How do we get restored? How do we get back to, to a relationship with the living God? That's the rest of the Bible. That's the whole of the Bible. We're in trouble and we need help. Jesus is full of grace to restore the relationship and yet he's full of truth. He doesn't restore the relationship by taking shortcuts. Oh, I don't worry about it. I'll just ignore it. No, his truth will not allow him to ignore the reality that we're in serious trouble. We defy the living God, our creator, who now becomes not just our creator, but now our redeemer, which takes us then to the cross. And that's where we are this morning. Six out of these eight foundational stones that there is a Savior. The first four truths are true. That Christ will come. Someone will come. God will send His own Son. God Himself will take the flesh. This is all last week. And why does He take the flesh? Ah, this Sunday's focus. Six of these eight foundational truths. He goes to the cross. He pays the price. He makes a way for us to be restored back to right relationship with Him. And to illustrate the cross and the aspects of the cross and all the thinking about the cross, I want to give you this first of three passages of Scripture we're going to cover. Luke 23, and you'll recognize this right away. Luke chapter 23, start with me in verse 26. As they led them away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, that's North Africa, who's coming in from that country, Africa, and laid on him the cross, the cross of Christ, that, that Simon would carry it behind Jesus. Now you've seen the movies and perhaps you've read this scripture that he, he's been up all night and being beaten all night. All night he's been without sleep. He's been beaten. He's emaciated, dehydrated. His, his, he's losing blood. His muscles are in spasm. He's exhausted. And he collapses under the weight of the cross. So they get this guy Simon to help him carry it. Verse 27. They're following him a great multitude of people, women and men, who are mourning and lamenting. We understand that. But turning to them, Jesus says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, pay attention, see this. The days are coming when they will say, 
Blessed are the barren. People say, when Princess and Steve said, we're going to have a baby. We all said, that's great. That's great. The days are coming when people say, I'm going to have a baby. You say, oh, this is not a good time to have a baby. Things are going to be that bad. The days are coming. Just catch what's happening here. Jesus is on his way to pay for our sins. He knows exactly what's happened, has happened and is going to happen in its apex. The, the worst is yet to come. And people are weeping. And he says, it's going to get worse. Don't miss that. The days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren. Not we're so happy having a baby. Oh my goodness, this is, a bad, this is not a good time to have a baby. Blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore, and the breast, the, next, the rest of the verse continues on, the breast that never nursed. And in fact, Revelation chapter 6, chapter 7 says this, they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, cover us, but rather die than go through this. Great tribulation, the end of time. Now here's the point, verse 31. If they do these things when the wood is green, which is a poetic way of saying, look, the gospel is really just getting going here. The whole Old Testament, more than two-thirds of the Bible, is given to say to us, we're in trouble and we need a redeemer. We can't fix this. We need something or someone outside of us to come to us and fix this. That's the whole Old Testament. In oversimplification, that's the essence of the Old Testament. The law was not given to get us to heaven. The law was given to give, to, to give us the evidence. You can't work your way into heaven. You can't even keep ten little commandments. You can't even keep ten. Let alone be sinless and righteous. That's the Old Testament. We're just getting the gospel going, the good news. The hope that we can be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with our Creator, who's now our Redeemer. If they're going to behave like this with the wood green, they're killing the Messiah. What's going to happen when it's well known? And to use the imagery here, the woods, something to not that the gospel gets meaningless, but it's old, and we've heard that, and shut up. It doesn't work anyhow. If they're going to treat gospel people, the gospel preaching, and gospel life with this kind of contempt of killing Jesus, what are they going to do with it? I want you to catch that big atmospheric picture that's painted for us. Now, we get to the specifics in verse 32. We really begin focusing on, on the work of the cross. Two others, not just Jesus, two others who were guilty. Criminals. Whatever word your translation is using there. Led away to be put to death with Jesus. When they came to the place that was called the skull, because the mountain, even photographs, depending on the angle of, of the camera, there's a, there's a profile in which 
Calvary looks like a skull. But I'm not so sure that's, that's the real essence of it. The, the name of the hill, before Jesus was there, was Calvaria, from which we get our English word Calvary. They came to the place, it's called the skull, and there, Scripture writers are very accurate to give us a specific word of crucifixion, the method by which he was put to death. Because there's mercy killings to put a person out of their pain. Now, crucifixion is exactly the opposite. It's intended to inflict as much pain as is imaginable without yet killing them so they would feel the pain longer. Crucifixion is intentionally abusive and consequential. This isn't respect for life. This is sending a message to the community. You mess with us, this is what happens. It's a declaration. We ain't playing around. We hurt people who get in our way. They crucify them. And the other two, one on the right and one on the left. Now here's the uniqueness of Jesus, 24, 34. Father, forgive them. They really don't know what they're doing. They think they're getting rid of someone who politically disagrees, who spiritually has exposed them. They think they're getting rid of, of, of someone who, who is, is a nuisance and an obstruction to their pursuits and their agenda. They don't know that they're killing the Messiah. But they also don't know that killing the Messiah is in fact the best thing that can happen. For in killing me, they are in fact unleashing unleashing this gospel that will continue to till I return. And there'll be churches all over the world, like First Baptist Church in Blackwood, New Jersey, 2023, that are hearing the gospel because these Roman soldiers put Jesus to death. They don't know what they're doing. But God knows exactly what He's It's just another crucifixion for them and let's throw some dice or they would flip stones and see who gets his robe. The people stood by watching and the rulers scoffed and they said, here we go. He saved others. Let him save himself if in fact he's the Christ. The anointed of God, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also this mockery inscription, a little plaque someone carved, saying, This is the king of the Jews. It's 100% mockery and sarcasm. Now, finally, in verse 39, we get to our focus on, on the cross. In verse 39, we start with this. First, but from where we started to verse 38, I just want you to catch the atmospheric attitude, the, the emotion of the day. One of the criminals, on the end of verse 39, who hanged on the cross, railed at him. Now, regardless of how proficient or, or not so much you are with, with language and, and vocabulary, Clearly the word railed is, it's, it 
someone's angry and they're speaking harsh is, is the minimal way of saying it. Words of, of be kidding me, shut up. He railed. He's angry. He, he's, he's condemning. He's, the best word might be blaming. In your printed notes, I, I think I called this guy the rebellious cross, the, the guy on this cross, rebellious. I, I think I'm changing or at least adjusting my thinking. The, the better word might be, he is rebellious, but the better word might be resentful. This guy is resentful. Hear what he says. Aren't you the Christ? He railed at him. Oh, man. Everyone says you're the Christ. You say you're the Christ. If you're really Christ, you do something for me and for you. Save us and save yourself. Come on, man. What are you doing? So let's, let's talk about this first guy for a moment and wonder if you fit his shoes. And the question is, do you get mad at God? Have you ever before been mad at God? Because God could have stopped this. How come you didn't stop this, God? Come on here, you and all your power. He's railing at Jesus. He's, I think, blaming Jesus. And I can go on and on and on here. You get the point. There's no need to, no pun intended, beat this dead dog anymore. It's, it's, you get the point. He's railing. He's angry. He's assuming no responsibility for his being there. Jesus is there. And I'm a little annoyed. In fact, I'm really confused and angry. How come you're not doing something about this? Do you get angry at God and blame Him for all the woes of the world? How come God not fixing this? How come God letting this happen to me? That's the first cross. That's the first guy. The second guy is the one we love because of his response, but I love him because he exposes the first guy. Next verse goes on to say this. The second guy, the other guy, rebukes the first guy. Shut up. Shut up. I can't believe you're talking like that to him. Shut up. My translation. Don't you fear God? Now why, why would this second guy say that, don't you fear God, unless he saw some deity in Jesus? I think this guy is God. You better watch your mouth, man. Look at the, it, it, the, the distinction between these two couldn't be more different. It, the, the gap couldn't be any wider. Shut up. Don't you fear God? We're under the same condemnation. We'll come back to that. Same condemnation. But we deserve it. We deserve it. We're, this is appropriate for us. The first guy says, you're not doing a thing for us and for yourself. What is wrong with you, man? The second guy says, no, we deserve this. And I'm speaking for you too, buddy, with the big mouth. We both deserve this. We deserve this. But we, in the room this morning, are 21st century Americans. And in this particular era of time in which we're alive and adult, we live in an era of time when the prevailing philosophy and the prevailing 
psychology of the day is don't let anybody put you down. You are the master of your own fate. We are self-made people. We encourage ourselves. We stand up tall. We believe that we can become anything we want to be. Well, he's not talking like that. He says, no, I deserve to be here. I know I'm a sinner. My dad used to quote this guy that I, I read his books. He's a pretty smart guy. But but he was a he was down to earth, very very intelligent, but very down to earth. You'd never know it. Very unassuming guy would be the best phrase to use there. He said, I, I, I really did suffer with an inferiority complex until I really got honest with myself with God, said, I really am inferior. And when I acknowledged my sin, got rid of my complex. It's in acknowledging my brokenness that healing comes. It's in acknowledging my inferiority that my sense of contentment comes. Because now I'm depending upon the intervention of God on my behalf. That's what's happening in the second guy. That's what's happening with this fellow in verse 40. Hey man, watch your mouth. You know, you know, you're, you're you're making it harder for yourself. You're digging a hole deeper for yourself. We, verse forty-one, we deserve this. We are receiving the due reward for our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. Every problem that comes to me, I can trace it to me or someone else's sin. Every problem that has ever come to any of us can be traced to somebody's sin, mine or theirs. And we want to blame God for everything. Every problem in my own mind, in my marriage, in my parenting, in interacting with my neighbors, with, with the people I encounter here in Gloucester Township and wherever I go and, and participate in activities and, and, and projects, when it goes south, it can always be traceable to me or somebody in the flesh did something wrong. And usually it's a unique collection of many persons, not just me or them. But we tend to want to blame God for everything. The second guy is beginning to understand that. He's facing death. And he knows that, yeah, I deserve this. Some enlightenment has come to him. Some awareness has, has, has registered in his soul, beyond his mind, deep within. Yeah, I, I, I don't have any, anything to con condemn or cry or blame. I'm messed up. And he gets the sense that it's not just me. And he says to him, you too, pal, you too, you just don't see it. So the question is, on which cross are you? On which cross am I? The first guy wants to blame God and anyone else he can and take no responsibility. The second guy is saying, well, it's definitely not God's fault. I know for a fact it's my fault. I deserve here. Pal, you don't have a clue. You're as guilty as I am. We, indeed, justly deserve this condemnation. We are receiving the due reward. This man 
has done nothing. He says one more thing. The second guy in verse 42 is beautiful. After he speaks about himself, speaks to his partner, he says in verse 42 to Jesus, just look at the simplistic and yet the severe phrase, God, just don't forget about me here. He doesn't give a great theological dissertation. He doesn't ramble on and on and on with words he doesn't understand. He, he doesn't say, am I saying it right? Do I, do I need to say it in Hebrew? Do I need to say it this way? Do I, do, can I get off the cross, get on my knees? What, what, do you, what do you want from me? I'll jump through any hoop. In simplicity and yet sincerity, he simply and profoundly says, God, don't forget me. Remember me. God, I'm begging for mercy. I'm trusting your gracious intervention. I don't bring anything to convince you that I don't deserve this, or maybe I deserve some, but, but maybe, maybe just 30 days and then get me out. I bring nothing. I offer nothing. I beg for mercy. But the first guy still clinging to his position. Dude, you can fix this. Let's go. Do something. And he's mad because he's not. Because he doesn't understand God is doing something. Oh, God is doing everything. And the second guy sees it. First guy can't see it at all. Because he's not talking about faith, trust, relationship. Just get me off of this blanky cross. Some people just care about their circumstances. Other people begin to understand, no, it's about life and even into eternity. If you just care about your immediate right now circumstances, repentance is not an issue. We, I don't know, repent for what? He has the power to fix this, and he's not. I'm mad at him. The second guy says, well, your anger is misapplied. We deserve to be here, but... That's not even the main thing. The, the, the primary thing is, he's your only hope, pal. You acknowledge, at least consider that, aren't you the Christ? You say you're the Christ. Come on, do Christ stuff. If he's the Christ, then cry out to Christ, pal. Remember me. Very short. Simple, but it screams of, of substance. I'm in trouble. And like our crazy friend here, you have that power to fix this. I'm asking you to remember me with that power. I'm begging for mercy that I don't deserve. He, his mind might be clearer now than it's ever been in his whole life. The guy on the second cross is a great guy. Interestingly enough, I think all three, this is awkward language, you're going to react when I say this, I think all three are in sin. First guy's in sin, he won't acknowledge it. The second guy is in sin, and he owns it completely. Jesus 
is in sin because he voluntarily picks it up and lays it on his own back. All three of them are bearing sin. The difference between the second two and the first guy is the first guy to this very moment right now is in hell carrying his own cross. The second guy is free. And he's in heaven with Jesus because he looked outside of himself for his solution. And he turned to the only person who has the power to legally, to legally eliminate all of his condemnation. Not just to eliminate because he will just, just wipe it off the books. No, I'll pay for it. So Jesus takes the second guy's sin. Jesus is not taking the first guy's sin because the first guy didn't ask him to. He's just mad that he let it happen in the first place. So Jesus took our sin, and in some way beyond my comprehension, he paid in three days of being in the tomb the fullness of condemnation and consequence to all of those who, like the second guy, will cry out for mercy. Their sin is gone. But in this moment on the cross, all three of them are dealing with their sin. The first two, theirs, and Jesus, all of ours. No wonder he said, my God, my God. Don't minimize this. So out of this passage in Luke, are, are, are you blaming Jesus or are you believing in Jesus? Are you the first guy or you the second guy? You mad because something and someone else has your life all messed up? Or are you just crying out for mercy? I'm just crying out for mercy. I, I, I don't deserve anything, but I'm begging for mercy. Turn to Galatians. Let's look at a second passage of Scripture. Galatians, I'm going to start in your printed notes say chapter 6. I want to give you first a little section, chapter 5, and then we'll get to chapter 6. Galatians 5, verse 1. For freedom. I love that word freedom. Not because I'm an American. It's really important you hear me say this. Long before Americans were waving the flag and talking about freedom, Jesus was talking about freedom. Americans are not corner marking on freedom. And, and as much as I don't hate America, I love America. Let's, let's get this clear. I, I think we often uh, deceive ourselves as to the degree of freedom which we think we enjoy. Ultimate freedom comes from Christ and from Christ alone. For freedom, Christ has set us free. There's people being persecuted for the cause of Christ in, in, in communist nations or, or other uh, totalitarian regimes, and boy, do they know true freedom. 
For freedom, Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, in your freedom. And do not submit again to the yoke of bondage or slavery. Why would we go back to our old sin that used to enslave us? I don't know, Pastor, I just can't stop. For freedom, Christ has set us free. You might be so attracted still or addicted to your old sin of preference and, 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 and uh, prominence, whatever it was, a moral issue, a, a, a chemical issue. I don't know what your sin of, of choice or multiple pleasures of sin, but Christ has called us, if you're born again, to freedom. Stand firm in your freedom. Why would you go back to the yoke of slavery? Look. Pay attention. Get this point. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, isn't it interesting he jumps from slavery, the absence of freedom, to a religious tradition? If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You saved by works, you saved by grace. Are you saved by religious ceremonial participation? Are you saved because I put my faith in, in the substitutionary work of Jesus for me at Calvary? What's your hope of redemption? What's your hope of cleansing? But it can't be a broad malaise, a little of this, a little of this, a little of this, a little of that. Because a little of all this means you have a whole lot of nothing. If, if you accept circumcision, the word accept doesn't mean, well, if you ever got circumcised, then, then grace means nothing to you. The word accept there is not, I participated in circumcision for religious or now in the 21st century in America for health issues. If you accept, he's not saying that, well, that's it, you can never be saved. If you're counting on circumcision as a religious thing to get you into heaven, Jesus means nothing to you. I tell you again, verse 3, every man who accepts circumcision, he's not going to keep the whole law. The sign of being Hebrew, which is kind of interesting, it's not a sign that only your wife should see. The sign of circumcision, because it has to do with, with cleanliness, especially cleanliness in the act of producing the next generation. So we're talking about being clean and keeping yourself from sin, keeping yourself pure. And if you're trying to keep yourself clean and pure by being good, you don't need Jesus. The Old Testament was not given to get us into heaven. The Old Testament was given to show us you need something outside of yourself to get you into heaven. You can't keep Ten Commandments. You can't keep the covenants you make. We're broken. We cling to these, these things that even God gave us as a mirror to show us our brokenness we think, well, if I do this and I keep the Ten Commandments, I'll be in heaven. You can't keep the Ten Commandments. I testify to every man, verse 3. You're obligated to keep the whole law, but you can't. You are severed from Christ if you're trying to be justified by the law. You have fallen away from God's grace. No, grace won't save me. Keeping the law will save me. No, it won't. No, it won't. Verse 5. For through the Spirit. For through the Spirit. By God's intervention. Jesus came to the earth. When Jesus left, he sent the Holy Spirit. Jesus is with us. He's speaking to us through the Spirit. Through the Spirit, by faith. We ourselves eagerly wait 
for the, this is a great word, watch this, hope of righteousness. Now think about what you know about yourself. Where you've been, what you've done. Where you've been, what you've done. And then think about how can I ever erase that away and be truly righteous? Not just morally acceptable to my neighbors who see this much of me. No, to God who sees all of me. Not just morally, but in every dimension to its deepest degree. How can I be clean before a perfect God? It's not by circumcision or baptism, which is a good thing or church attendance, which is a good thing, or prayer, which is a wonderful thing. Those things don't make us righteous. Only the blood of Christ can wash away our sin. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but only faith, only faith. And what did the second thief on the cross display to us? Faith. He rebukes the first guy because you're still mad at someone else for not, not, not making your situation better. You're taking no responsibility for yourself. You're not crying out to God for help. You're blaming God for this whole situation, which you brought on yourself. It's not religious stuff. The external religious stuff. You think taking communion is going to get you to heaven? It's not. It's done to make you remember Jesus. Jesus delivers us from our own sin. Jesus carries us to heaven. What can away my sin? Either circumcision or uncircumcision. I don't care which side of the fence you take. Counts for anything. Only faith. Only faith. Through love. Here's chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. That's chapter 5. Here's chapter 6. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. <laughs> hey. This group right here? We all got circumcised. Huh? What do you think? And that means something. That means that we, we love God and, and we're walking with God. And God approves of us. We, we, me and God, we're like this. You know what? Because we've been circumcised. When, when you when visit with family and, and, and neighbors and friends, and what do they unintentionally communicate? What, what do they subtly say that my, my hope of being clean before God is I, I go to church. I take communion. I got baptized in three different denominations. I did this. I did that. It is those who want to make good showing in the flesh. Who would tell you, you need to be circumcised? I suspect, Paul says, that they're saying that, that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Paul seems to be saying here, there's a natural pressure to come. You, you're one of those Jesus, you know, yeah, you, you people are crazy. Nobody likes you guys. We do this, we do this, we do this. We don't know what you guys do, but you guys are crazy. So here's someone saying, you've got to be circumcised. They might be saying that, to avoid this condemnation that comes with Christianity. Even those who are circumcised do not keep the law. Because you'd have to be perfect to keep the law. And none of us are. 
That's why Jesus kept it for us. He lived a sinless life. He kept the law. And then he applies his behavior to my broken life. Those who are circumcised, they don't keep the law. They desire to have you circumcised. They may boast. We got another one. Look, we got more than they do. We must be right. Is that the way we think? Whoever has the most money wins. Whoever's the most attendance, they're, they're, they're the ones that, they're, that's the truth there. Wow, that's pretty bizarre thinking. Boasting in the flesh. 14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Christ. When you think about your own life, what makes you righteous? When you try to, if not impress, well, I don't try to impress my friends, but okay, 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 let's, let's play with words. You're not trying to impress anybody. But when you communicate to people that you're pretty confident that you're okay with God, what is it that you say that communicates that? I, I'm, I don't, I don't, I'm not afraid to stand before God because, what do you, what do you, how do you finish the sentence? If it's anything in the first person, you're in trouble. I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this, I said this. I. If your answer to that question is in the first person, you're in serious trouble. The answer has to be because he, third person, because he, because he did this, because he did this, because he did this. Verse 13. Those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. If they desire to have you circumcised, they may boast in your flesh. But far be it, 14, from me that I would boast in anything except the cross. Because at the cross, this great transfer occurs. He takes all of our collective sin from all of the age. I can't even imagine that. That's a whole lot of sin by a whole lot of people for a whole long time. He takes all of that sin from our collective lives throughout of all the ages, and he takes it on himself. And to those who believe he's doing that, he gives to them his righteousness. You know why I'm not afraid to stand before God? And you think I'll be trembling? I will be. But you know why I have some measure of confidence? at least in my spirit, because I know I'm there and not because of anything I've ever done. I'm there because Jesus said, come, come, son, come with me. Far be it from me to boast in my circumcision, my being a Baptist minister, my I never beat my wife, God be far from me to boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. And he catches the last two phrases in verse 14, and it's also by the cross that the world is crucified to me, and I am crucified to the world. Can we say that? Or do you catch yourself loving this world way too much? At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. It's at the cross 
that I finally have something that I can say, this is good, this is right, I am not afraid. I boast, not in my self-righteousness, I boast in the cross, because it's the cross that His righteousness became my righteousness, and my sin became His sin, and in some way I don't understand, He went to hell for me. That's why I find it easier not to love this world as much as I once did. The world is dead to me. And I'm trying to get dead to the world. My flesh still says, oh, you see that car? You need that car. Dave, I don't need that car. I, I don't need that car. I definitely don't need that boat. And I sure, at this age, don't need another motorcycle. You, 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 what you need what you need is more of Jesus. The world is dead to me. And it's not just the world's stuff. It's, it's the accolades. Oh, let Pastor Dave do that. Let's give him this and let him speak here. That's dead to me. The world is dead to me and I am dead to the world. Christ has given me life and I want to live for Christ. In the world, but not to get anything out of the world. So in this passage, the Galatians passage, 5 and 6, the question is, what do you boast? What's, what's, what's your, what do you stand on? What's your confidence? When, when, when you want to impress people or you want to be clear before God, what is it you bring up? Something you've done? Ah, you're in trouble. Because everything that we've done pales. It, it's, it, it can't even mention the same sentence with what Jesus has done. If you're not boasting on the cross, you have nothing to boast about. Just shut your mouth. Go to job, go, do your job, and get a paycheck, and hope no one ever really figures you out. You have nothing to boast about. The significance of my life, the substance of my life, is Jesus. He finishes up. Circumcision counts for nothing. Neither circumcision. Continues on. Non-circumcision. It doesn't matter. A new creation. I was alive, and then I died, and Jesus made me alive again. I died to the world, and the world is dead to me. But I'm alive to Christ and His power and His presence in my life. That's where my life comes from. That's where my joy comes from. I, I, I could preach a series of sermons just from that phrase, where my joy comes from. Look, I'm not stupid, or as stupid as you might assume. I'm not naive to this. You don't think circumstances and events break my heart and make me weak? They do. They do. But if they break my heart and make me weak to the degree that I'm back with the first thief that we saw, in, in the Gospel of Luke, that I'm mad at God because He didn't stop this, then, then what you're saying is, well, I, I only worship God and only love God when things always go my way. Have you read the Bible much at all? There's a whole lot of crying going on. Whether it's 
the results of sin that the person themselves has done or the results of sin of, of, that something has happened to them. There's a whole lot of crying going on in the Bible. There's a lot of brokenness and sadness and sorrow and sin and swallowing the consequence of that sin, either done by yourself or done to you by someone else. And yet in all of that grieving and injustice and cruelty, there's always someone like the second thief who says, look, some of this we brought on ourselves. Our hope is in God's grace. And we turn to God and say, God, give me your grace. Somewhere along the line, we began to believe that if we go to church and do the right thing most of the time, no one's perfect, and we give ourselves these little back doors, and then, then, then our marriage should never have problems, and our kids will always love us, and, and, and everyone will love Jesus, and, and we'll live happily ever after, and You don't even find that in biblical families, let alone 21st century families. Two of David's sons tried to kill him. It's not like, hey, Dad, we need, you're, you, you, you keep talking about this coming Jesus, your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson going to be the next king on your throne. Okay, okay. We get, Dad, we ain't feeling, we ain't feeling, Dad. We think you're crazy. It wasn't just that. They tried to kill him. And yet it's the David. It's that same King David who wrote all these psalms and he's singing praises to God because he was dead to the world and the world was dead to him. And, and there's moments when that wasn't true. That's the story of Bathsheba. Samson, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? And on and on and on. The Bible gives us these illustrations. And yet for those of us who have tasted the sweetness of God's grace and His mercy and His forgiveness, our sin grieves us and we find ourselves running back running back to the cross saying, Oh God, forgive me for wandering away from this basic, fundamental, elementary, foundational truth. My hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness. And if my spouse leaves me, I'll do all I can to repair it, but I'm sticking with you, Jesus. And if my kids curse me, I will weep and cry and leave the door open and do all I can to bring them home. But God, I'm sticking with you. And on and on those examples go. I know some of the pain that some of you are drinking. And others, I think it's worse than what you've even let anyone know. But I'm telling you, God is faithful. And our only hope is the work of Christ on the cross. That's why I boast in the cross. And I've stopped boasting about anything and everything else. Because it will all pass away. All passing. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done with Christ, for Christ, in Christ will last. I am crucified to the world. 
the world was crucified with me. Peter picks up that same language in his writings, 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's finish up. 1 Peter chapter 2. I said, let's finish up. We got 17 minutes to go. Let's see if I make it. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the sovereign will, all-knowing God. When Jesus was reviled, he didn't say, Oh yeah? <laughs> Guess what? I have the power of heaven and earth. You're going straight to hell. How about that? You like me now? When Jesus reviled, he did not revile again. When he suffered, he did not threaten. I'm in God's hands. The truth of the matter is, we're all in God's hands. But the first thief didn't like it. And he didn't own the fact that I put myself here. The second guy said, no, I put myself here, but he can get me out. So he humbled himself and repented and put his faith in someone other than himself. So when your life goes south, when everything turns wrong, you own it, you just try to blame God for everything. He entrusted himself to the Father. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree at the cross. We might die to sin and live to righteousness. Sin will put us on the cross. If by God's grace intervention, He gets us off the cross to continue to live, then we live for righteousness. Sin gets me there. Righteousness gets me off, and now I live this new life. So what kind of life? See, we live in America where we want it both ways. We want it both ways. Give me just enough Jesus to make me respectable, but I don't want to get one of those crazy, radical, you know, fanatics. <laughs> they actually go to church all the time. They pray all the time. Every conversation, they bring up Jesus. No, pal, give me a break. No, I, I know what sin has done to me and is still trying to do to me. And I know what Jesus has done for me. If Jesus makes us crazy, I hope we all go insane. He bore our sins that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Here's the phrase, by his stripes or his wounds, we've been healed. We've been, we've been healed. I, I, I have a person in my life who was in the military and smoked and, and, and drank coffee 24-7. That was his life. I'm talking about my brother, my only brother. Smoked and, 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 and just lived on cigarettes and coffee, cigarettes and coffee. So, okay, and, and that produced some issues in his life. Our dad died. My brother 
came out and, and we're having the funeral and, and you know we're talking and laughing and telling stories and we start crying and we tell some more stories we laugh for a while we cry for a while and he said I, I gotta go outside and I thought he was just walking around getting some air and, and uh, clearing his head he comes back in, in the house and I, I smelled smoke I, I love this line about smoking smoking don't send anybody to hell Makes you smell like you've been there, but it just smoke is not the issue. It's freedom. The issue is freedom. I love that verse previously in, in, in Galatians. So I said, Are you are you kidding me? I looked at my brother, I said, Are you kidding me? He says, and he gave a little grin, like like we're we're twelve years old again. Yeah, well, now what you don't know is it, he survived lung, uh, not, not, I'm sorry, throat. He survived throat cancer from smoking. <laughs> he said, I, 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 what am I going to tell you? I said, tell me you're an idiot. Say, say, tell me something. See, that's an easy illustration because uh, smoking, uh, although I, I, did, I do like a cigar every now and again and a good pipe, but smoking's never been an issue at all for me. That's, that's not my sin of choice. It's easy for me to pick up my brother because, what are you, stupid? You're a cancer survivor. And the Holy Spirit says to me often when I go back to my sin, what are you, stupid? Dave, what are you doing? I'm no different than my brother. And you're no different from your, whoever thinks you're better than. They're really caught. Oh, you're not? Every day I'm saying, God, help me crucify myself to the world and help me to believe the world is dead to me. I don't need the world's approval. I don't need the world's blessing. I don't need the world's stuff. I need more of you, Jesus. I need more of you. Don't let me get on some kind of high horse here and think, oh, I said, hey, he, he's different than us. No, I'm not different than you. You think my life wouldn't be devastated and hasn't been devastated when things go wrong in our family? When Carm's not happy with me? You think that doesn't affect me, that I don't grieve about this? and I try to blame her, but you can't. Not because she's just wonderful, although she is. This is my, this is my stuff. This is, this is my sin. So I run back to the cross. And when we find each other at the cross, we get along fine. And when I go to the cross, and our kids of any age, and now their kids, we all meet at the cross, and everything's fine. Because we're forgiven at the cross. And we're reminded that not only you're forgiven, but you're empowered to not do that. You don't have to do that. I know your flesh still wants to do that. But if you feed your spirit, then starve your flesh. When your flesh says, hey, let's go do this, your spirit says, we ain't doing that no more. Because that's going to kill us. I have to get angry. My instinct is to get angry because my flesh feels like I've been disrespected. I ain't going to stand for that. No one was that disrespected than Jesus of Nazareth. He just kept turning the other cheek. 
and ultimately they killed him. You think he's a loser? Here we are this morning worshiping him, saying, oh God, help me to be more like you. So, the question out of 1 Peter is this. By his wounds we are healed. What are you looking to to heal your problems? Look, I, I get sick and at some point I'll try to do it over the counter medicine, take something or, you know, just ignore it. And, but if at some point it won't go away, okay, fine, i got to go to the doctor. I'll go to the doctor and he'll tell me, do this, do that, take this, take that, okay, okay. And off we go. You got spiritual issues, you got attitude issues, you got selfishness issues, you got self-pity. You I don't know what you're dealing with. What are you using to bind up those wounds? What are you using to, to heal that hurt? The verse says, by his wounds, by the stripes before the beating, by, during the beating, and by the crucifixion itself. That's what heals us, spirit, soul, and even body. If you're not every day, all day long, taking yourself in your mind, in your, in your meditations, the thoughts you think, back to the cross, you're pursuing a wrong solution. It's the cross. Well, what about... And we give some, some non-spiritual, as if there's anything non-spiritual. We give what we think is a non-spiritual circumstance. And, well, James says, pray for the sick. Pray for the sick. Here's a spiritual application to a biological problem. Pray for the sick. We run to the doctor, and when we can't find the doctor that gets it right, finally we say, God, please help. God says, I was here. You didn't call me first. You have an economic problem? Oh, okay, borrow more money. That's what created the first problem. We don't pray. We don't bring our money to God. We don't bring our bodies to God. We, we just show up on Sunday and say, I'm, I'm one of the good guys. How come you're not taking care of me, God? You're going to wind up like the first guy on the cross, blaming God for everything. The second guy is the model. Own your part in it and cry for mercy. Own your piece of it. I'm here because I deserve to be here. God, please show mercy. I'm begging for mercy. Remember me. Remember me. Galatians says we've been called to freedom. And if you're not enjoying all the freedom God died to give you, go back to the cross. Sit, stand, kneel at the cross. <coughs> Meditate on the cross. Rediscover the fullness of your freedom in Christ. I don't have to go back to that old life anymore. I'm free. And let's brag a little about Jesus rather than take credit for the wonderful lives that we enjoy. I don't boast in the world and its stuff. I don't boast in my accomplishments. we got to stop that. 
I boast in this. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. You want joy? You want purpose? On and on and on, all the stuff we want? Go to the cross. Go to the cross. We're coming to the apex. We're coming to the apex of this whole great, grand, biblical narrative. It starts in the garden. It takes us to the cross. And then we change. Our lives are changed at the cross. And we continue to live to ultimately we're home in heaven with Jesus and the Father and the Spirit forever. Next week, Pastor Jose will speak on faith. Installment eight out of this eight series is about life. True life. Real life. Not some cultural try to attempt to make life better for ourselves. No, I mean real, free, meaningful life. But that life begins for us at the cross. Stand with me. Let's sing.